You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Hey there, Rainbow Warriors. I'm CJ, host of Beyond the Rainbow, true crimes of the LGBT. My episodes focus on crimes committed by and against the LGBTQ community. I've covered cases you probably have heard of, such as Matthew Shepard, Brandon Tina, and the Orlando Pulse nightclub massacre, as well as some lesser-known cases like the murder of Ray Hainish, the Australian gay beat murders, and the suspicious disappearance of Lisa Lynn Stone. I cover cases brought to me by listeners like Penny Brummer, who I believe was wrongfully convicted, taboo cases such as lesbian corrective rape and murder in South Africa, and pray the gay away camps. I discuss gay serial killers, women who pretend to be men to hook up with other women, and trans murders. I'm opinionated and uncensored. I know I'm not everyone's cup of tea, but surely I'm someone shot at tequila. No matter what your gender or orientation in life might be, please join me as I tackle rainbow crimes in search of unicorn justice. Remember, it's not a crime to be gay, unless you're a murderer. Most missing person cases center around one person, or perhaps at most two or three people. But in the case that we're discussing today, that is not the case. This case centers around six boys that all disappeared at the same time, probably in the same place. This case took place in 1995. It turned 27 years of age in March of 2022, and to date, this case is still confusing, perplexing, and crazy to anyone that knows about it. The boys are referred to as the Lost Boys because they seemingly disappeared into thin air and the case is no closer to being solved today than it was when it took place. Get ready to hear an interesting story that doesn't have a close to it, even with so many people still following it and tracking and trying to solve it. There has been next to nothing in the way of evidence and all that is left is the wonderment for those involved and the heartbreak. Welcome to Gone But Never Forgotten, The Lost Boys of Pickering, Ontario. to another episode of GBNF. This week, we're going to stray a bit away from the depths that we dove into in the Luca Magnata case with something that is a little less graphic, although we don't know if it's any less sinister. 
Thankfully, that also means that I do not need to fly solo on this episode, and my much more lovely and much more beautiful wife is rejoining us in her co-host chair. Welcome back, Julie. We and I missed you. Hello, and I've missed all of you. But like you said at the top of episode one on Luca Magnata, I need to know when I have to bow out from episodes and take a step back. I'm so happy to be on this journey with you and with all of our fans, but I need to look out for my own mental well-being as well. So as much as it sucks, I'm sure that there will be episodes here and there where you'll be manning the ship without a co-captain. And as much as I was lonely, I and our fans completely respect that for sure. I think that any of us who truly get into true crime really understand that it's not for everyone and we all have to decide where our limits are. I was actually very impressed with you that you were able to speak up and step back. Anyways, we've had some very exciting times here on the podcast and behind the scenes of late, running our first full-fledged contest across Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook was a big part of that. Yes, it was. A lot of work, but definitely well worth that work. We saw the numbers on our social media go up and more interaction as well, which was great. For those that don't know, we did a random draw from all of the names that participated and we gave away two prizes of $50 towards merch in the GBNF merch store. If you want to join in when we have more contests or even just dialogue or be involved, please follow us on Twitter at GBNF Podcast, Instagram at GBNF Pod, Facebook at Gone But Never Forgotten, and TikTok at GBNF Pod. We hope to see you on those pages. We want to give a big old GBNF shout out to our goners that were lucky winners as well. From Facebook, Emily Marie was one of our winners, and from Twitter, Jorge Rodriguez was our other winner. We have reached out to both winners and are getting their merch sorted out so that they can rock those GBNF logos. Congratulations, Emily and Jorge, and thank you to everyone who took time to like, share, retweet, tag, and just plain be part of the fun. We'll definitely run another contest soon. We should also mention at this time that, as always, we love the support that rolls in for us and for the podcast from our listeners. As most of you know, there are a lot of costs that are associated with hosting and doing a podcast, and we're so thankful for our PayPal and Patreon contributors, as well as those of you that have flattered us by buying any merch. Every little bit helps. You can check out our socials to get our link tree that will show you all the ways that you can join us, help us, and help the podcast. But likely the best way is to still check us out over on Patreon. There are great perks for being a patron, and we look forward to getting to know each and every one of you better. Absolutely. And for those of you that don't already know, podcasting and creating has truly become a passion, dream, and desire for me. And I hope to one day shift myself even from working the normal 9-to-5 job into creating full-time. The best way for us all to do that and get even more content and even other podcasts rolling is for you to take the time as you listen to click follow, click like, and leave a review for us anywhere and everywhere that you can take in our podcast. We need to get this thing moving up the charts, getting more listens, more love, more eyes, and more ears. Speaking of ears, I think that it's about time for us to get rolling on today's case. Yes, this one took place just a few minutes down the highway from where I grew up. Let's tell the good people about this harrowing tale of six boys who disappeared 27 years ago. 
On Thursday, March 17, 1995, St. Patrick's Day, there was quite the party going on in Pickering, Ontario, as it was also March break on top of St. Patrick's Day. From all accounts, the alcohol was flowing at the party and everyone was having a good time. Later in the night, six of the boys that were attending the party decided to leave the party and witnesses would say that the six boys were off in search of more fun and a little more adventure. Many people would say that they remembered the boys saying that they were headed to the beach and at least one person even stated that the boys had said that they were going to go down and goof around on a boat. The six boys were Chad Smith, Danny Higgins, Jay Boyle, Jamie Lefebvre, Michael Cummins, and Robbie Rumble. The last time that the six boys would be seen physically was as they were walking towards East Shore Marina in Pickering, Ontario. All six of the young men were 17 and 18 years of age at the time of their disappearance. They had been partaking in the time off school by smoking, drinking, and letting their hair down, so to speak, to have a good time. That sounds like a typical March break to me. Yeah, nothing really out of the ordinary in the story so far. Just teens being teens. The last time that any of the boys would be seen in person, or otherwise, was later found on video surveillance at roughly 1.48 a.m. Michael, Jamie, and Robbie were seen on video as they broke into a marina on Frenchman's Bay. The boys would also be captured by another camera as they stole beer from one of the boats at the marina. The reason that surveillance footage was looked at was because of the break-in at the marina. There also had been reports that two boats had been stolen from two different marinas. From one marina, an imitation Boston Whaler motorboat was stolen, and from another marina, a water tricycle was stolen. But before the police would connect the boys and the surveillance footage from the thefts and break-in, there was to be reports of the boys missing, of course. The morning of March 18th, the families of the boys would indeed start to get worried. They had not heard from their sons and their friends also said that they had not heard from the boys either. A few of the girlfriends of the boys were worried because they had not heard from them and decided to call the police. Police would tell the girls that because of the ages of the missing boys and because they had been partying the previous night, they weren't going to take the situation too seriously. Their belief was that in situations like this, young men would turn up having gone to another party elsewhere, or they would be sleeping off the party. They believed at this point that odds were very good that they would simply reappear and all would be fine. There was no reason to believe that anything had gone awry. It was also believed that these were not six young men who would run away and leave. As such, police believed that it would all be alright. There definitely were things that point to the fact that these six wouldn't have just run away to escape life or start over somewhere else. All of the boys had close ties to people in Pickering, and Jay Boyle even had a young baby that his mom was watching for him as he was out at the party. Usually, I'm the first person to jump to judgment in situations like this and jump all over the police. But in this case, I feel that if you feel the police were making a mistake, it's more with the added benefit of hindsight. Yes, I'm sure that there are far more cases of older teens like this simply doing one of those things and showing back up later in the day or what have you than cases that turned out as sad as this one did. Exactly. 
I know that the police don't have the resources available to chase every single phone call of a person who's been MIA for 12 hours or so. By 2 p.m. Saturday, though, 36 hours after what would be the last sighting of the boys on the security cameras, everyone was taking their disappearances a lot more seriously. A massive search would be underway. Police would head down to the marina to start asking around to see if anyone had seen or heard anything of the young men around 2 a.m. in the morning. Witnesses would tell the police that they had heard a motor start up in the marina and head out onto the lake between 2.30 and 3 a.m. Obviously, this led the police to an educated decision that odds were that the boys had ventured out in the two stolen boats without life jackets and under the influence and had perhaps capsized or fallen overboard. Right, and the fear then was that, of course, they would have quickly perished. March in southern Ontario is not very forgiving. Historical records show that the temperature when the boys went missing would have been hovering around zero degrees Celsius. The average water temperature in this part of Lake Ontario for that time of year would be roughly four degrees Celsius. So, if the boys did indeed find themselves in the water for any reason, it would definitely not have ended well. Had the boys have been in the water with those temperatures and circumstances, it is believed that hypothermia would have set in within minutes. With all of that in mind, the Durham Regional Police were joined by the Toronto Police Marine Unit, the Coast Guard, a Hercules C-130 aircraft, and a helicopter from the Air-Sea Rescue Unit from the Canadian Air Force Base in Trenton, Ontario. They would be joined by hundreds and then thousands of volunteers who started looking for any sign of the boys. The boats or anything on land or in the water. This is really where the story gets weird. Unexplainable and weird. Absolutely nothing was found. No people, no bodies, no clothing, no boats. Are you finding everyday life boring? Finding work becoming stressful? Are you looking for something to distract yourself? And maybe learn something while getting distracted? Try tuning in to Weird Distractions Podcast, a weekly podcast hosted by me, Alex Underbaki, and me, Christy McCann, where we rotate between true crime, conspiracy theories, paranormal stories, folklore, and more. All things that most people would consider weird. Which is what we're all about. You can stream Weird Distractions Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you need a distraction, we got you. The only thing that was ever discovered was a gas can that was believed to have belonged to the motorboat. But even if that gas can was from that boat, it doesn't really prove anything at all. Boats often have more than one gas can on board, so it doesn't even entirely prove that a boat sank or found duress of any kind. Not to mention, it may not have even come from the boat that the six young men were on. It is definitely bizarre that the search and rescue turned up absolutely nothing. Even if the boats had capsized, which wouldn't be easy to do with the Boston Whaler, at some point, parts of the boat or bodies or something should have turned up in terms of evidence. And even if that evidence didn't show up a day or two after the boys went missing, we just passed the 27th anniversary. And to date, there has literally been zero evidence in this case. It really doesn't make a whole lot of sense at all. 
There are definitely quite a few strange things on the periphery of this case, as well when you really start to dive into the facts aside from the disappearance. Nobody has given up on getting closure in this case, and a lot of the steps along the way seem to be pretty strange. One of the things that seems to bother a lot of people is the fact that the police did not put anything into action when the young men were all reported as missing. The fact that they took 36 hours to start searching at all does rub a lot of people the wrong way. But to that I want to play devil's advocate a little bit. This is six young men that for all intents and purposes were in good physical shape. That alone seems to be a very good reason to me for police to perhaps determine that the odds of there being any foul play or what have you was low. As we mentioned at the top of the episode, usually when you have a missing person case, you're looking at one or maybe two people. To think that six young men who were just having the time of their lives the night before may be all in danger would be a leap without the benefit of hindsight. For sure. We think that it may be helpful to this case and for information in general if we shared a bit about the laws in Canada when it comes to missing people. The Canadian Centre for Information on Missing Adults, or CCIMA, states a couple of things that may be of note to some of you listening. First of all, a major myth in Canada is that there is a waiting period before you're able to report an adult as missing to police. This is incorrect. Families usually know patterns and routines of loved ones and will see reasons for concern long before other people. As such, if you do have a reason to believe that there is something amiss, you do not have to wait for any amount of time to go by before you call the police. Many people also believe that you need to be related to a missing person in order to file a missing person's report. This is also incorrect. There are definitely situations, like people going missing when away from family, where that information would obviously be accepted from someone that was not related to the missing person. However, one thing to remember also is that when you're dealing with adults, there is no crime in an adult choosing to sever all ties from people and walk away from their lives. That is why you will find situations where police will tell the family that their loved one is alive and well, but they do not wish to be in contact with the people that are looking for them. All of this to say, really, that the police have a lot of things to weigh when deciding whether to pour manpower, resources, and most importantly, time into any given report or case. On the flip side of that, though, these are drunk teens who, depending where you consider the cutoff to adulthood, were not adults. The police could have at least sent someone to try and get witness accounts from people who attended the party. As we reported on, there were people who knew, for example, that the boys may be headed to a marina. This, of course, would have still been a great deal of time after the six of them disappeared. I think that that is one of the reasons that I'm a bit remiss to call foul on the police on this particular thing. If we're operating at all under the assumption that these six boys capsized their two boats or wound up in the water in some way, odds are that they would still not have been found if the police had started searching 12 hours or so earlier. Obviously, this line of thinking is not foolproof, especially because we don't know what happened in this case. There were definitely some other strange things that took place after the fact in this one, though. 
not the least of which took place on April 10th, 1998, just over three years after the disappearance, two sets of human remains were discovered and pulled out of the Niagara River. I want to add an aside and let you know the Niagara River and Pickering are definitely not all that close. One of the sets of remains was only bones, but the second set of remains had some clothing still attached to it. In the first police report on the discovery, it was noted that the clothing on the remains was a pair of red Levi denim jeans with a size 32 waist. There was also a brown belt attached still, a black wallet, and white socks. This was of note to the Lost Boys of Pickering because Jay Boyle had been wearing a red pair of Levi jeans. Jay's sisters also said that the belt that was on the remains also looked like their brother's belt. The family of Jay Boyle went to the Durham Regional Police and asked for them to investigate the remains to see if they were Jay's. Shockingly, the police reportedly told Jay's family that the cost of doing so would be too high and that they would not be able to do so. The police told the family that there was no way that the remains that had been found so far from Pickering belonged to Jay. Yep, that's what they said. This is absolutely outrageous if it's true. I'm actually going to err on the side of caution here and say that hopefully it's not a factual response that was given to the family, because if indeed this is true, that's actually infuriating. In a day and age when people and bodies show up far from where they went missing, they apparently had the nerve to tell this family that getting answers for them would be too expensive, and it didn't matter because it was impossible that it could be him anyways. Maybe they just had a good psychic on staff that told them that this was a waste of money. I absolutely couldn't believe this. It is also incredibly puzzling because, like we said earlier, there is actually not even any definitive proof that the boys left from that marina in a boat and even went missing at all on Lake Ontario. It is actually possible that they never went out on the boat in the first place. Jay's family obviously weren't going to stop there. This was at the very least a chance for them to maybe get some closure on their son. They hired a private investigator and started moving paper towards trying to see if the remains were in fact a match for Jay. As bureaucracy has a way of doing when you try to move mountains that are outside of the standard protocol, there seemed to be a lot of issues for the family as their private investigator tried to get access to the original files and paperwork on the body that was taken out of the Niagara River. And in the end, when they finally received the files they were seeking, a large part of the reports were already redacted. On top of all of that, when the remains were finally made available to the private investigator and the coroner, the news came that there was not enough evidence remaining to complete a DNA profile. And the pants, they were discovered to be a lightweight material and orange in color. You might be sitting there thinking to yourself, but they reported that they were red Levi jeans. And you'd be correct. That's a pretty big change. The clothing wasn't even the same color or material that was first reported, and that caused the family to believe that this could have been Jay's remains. This was a massive red flag to me. Now, one of the sources that we use for studying this case was the blog of Serial Napper, a medium. I felt that Nikki really put it best. When you read red denim Levi jeans, 
That's pretty specific. So if you wrote Levi's in the report, you would think that someone saw a label or something that distinguished the pants as Levi's. Nobody calls jeans Levi's as an all-encompassing name. That is definitely a weird set of circumstances for sure. Especially when even if you allowed for Levi's to mean jeans, the pants weren't even denim or jeans at all. Perhaps we should now mention how much time actually passed here as well before the remains from the Niagara River could finally be analyzed. As we mentioned, the body was discovered in 1999 and the independent report came in 2014, 15 years later. Regardless, the remains were eventually discovered to have belonged to another man who had also been missing since 1995. Now, 27 years later, Ottawa-based investigator Bruce Ricketts is refusing to close and leave the case behind him. On the 27th anniversary, the Toronto Star ran a story on the case and Bruce stated that he is still working with the Toronto Police and the Durham Regional Police to try and reconcile some of the things that took place during the search for the young men. One of the things that still sticks out to Bruce is that the gas can was Sorry, is that the gas can that was found and determined to have belonged to the stolen boat was found washed up in Wilson, New York. Bruce feels that for that to have ever even been a destination for a gas tank from that boat, the boys would have had to have taken the boat and headed towards Toronto. It is really nice to see that people are still keeping this case alive. Yep, and it's definitely a weird one. Bruce asks that anyone who may have any information should reach out to him directly at lostboys.tipline at gmail.com. Here is the information on all six young men at the time of their disappearance. Robert Lloyd Rumble was 16 at the time of his disappearance. He was Caucasian, had brown eyes, short brown hair, and was 5'6 and 134 pounds. He was wearing red sneakers made of suede material, blue pants, and a black and brown jacket. He had scars on his left hand and right big toe. He also had a birthmark on right foot and his ears were pierced. Daniel Mark Higgins was 17 at the time of his disappearance. He was Caucasian, had blue eyes, brown hair, and was 5 foot 9 and 134 pounds. He was wearing blue jeans, a black Detroit Red Wings hat, and brown shoes. He had a tattoo on his right upper arm of the word Cujo. Jamie George Lefebvre was 17 at the time of his disappearance. He was Caucasian, had brown eyes, blonde hair, and was 5 foot 8 and 119 pounds. He was wearing black jeans, a black windbreaker, and black and white running shoes. He had scars on his left shin and left eyebrow. Chad Eric Edward was 18 at the time of his disappearance. He was Caucasian, had brown eyes, shoulder-length brown hair, and was 5'11 and 170 pounds. He was wearing a black vest, a wool sweater, blue pants, and brown rubber boots. He had a tattoo of a cross on his left hand. J. Alexander Charles Boyle was 17 at the time of his disappearance. He was Caucasian, had green eyes, brown hair, and was six feet tall and 150 pounds. He was wearing a black canvas baseball hat, a red hooded sweater, red denim jeans, a green Fila sweater, and black Adidas running shoes. 
He had a broken right baby finger, a scar on his left leg, and a piercing on his left ear. And finally, Michael Richard James Cummins was 17 at the time of his disappearance. He was Caucasian, had blue eyes, brown hair, and was six feet tall and 154 pounds. He was wearing a black sweatshirt, a green hoodie, white running shoes, and blue denim pants. His left ear was pierced. Aside from reaching out to Bruce, the private investigator, you should also call the Durham Regional Police at 905-579-1520, extension 2511, and quote case 95-26396. Or, as always, you can call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS. As we always do in our missing person cases, we appeal to anyone who may know anything about any of these missing boys, or if you are one of these boys, please reach out. There are detectives, family, friends, and so much more that are trying to bring and find closure to this case and find out what happened to these six young men who left a party on St. Patrick's Day in 1995. We can only hope that someone listening to us now can bring an end to the angst and the frustration that circles around this case. So what do you think about this case, Julie? I think probably out of all the ones we've done, it's the weirdest one just because there's no evidence. Like there's nothing. Usually like there's something and it's weird or it, you know, kind of contradicts something else. But this time there's nothing. Like I don't even know what to think. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty crazy. So... My brother brought this case to me, and it was just like, I, I remember hearing about this, but I was obviously really young when this happened. But it's crazy how little there actually is. Like, for a gas can even to venture to New York and just kind of be found there is so weird. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, you can honestly think like, yeah, it's definitely possible that the boat's capsized and such, but this isn't an ocean. You know, like, these bodies you know, something is going to show up somewhere. You yeah. know, there's not sharks that are just devouring everything and all of the evidence and, you know, things that were on the boat didn't just disappear. Sure, there's lots of things that maybe are undistinguishable or you don't know that it's from that boat. But the, the fact that there's nothing that's definitively, okay, this at least proves whatever. Yeah. And then there's also the fact that like, there actually isn't any evidence that the boys got on the boat in the first place. Yeah. So you do know? you think, like, because there's no evidence that instead of just, like, a missing persons case, this could be maybe, like, a murder case? Do you think well, that's a possibility? It's possible, but it's like, you know, how do you overpower six people? No matter how drunk you are. Yeah. The one thing I do remember, and I remember reading when I was studying the case, too, is, like... Um, across Lake Ontario from, you know, that area around Pickering to, like, New York at some point, I don't know if it still is, was kind of a drug runner area. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I mean, there's always that chance that, like, they got mixed up with something or were involved with something and they're just gone. But it's it's just weird when you don't even have a way to lean that's like, okay, this is probably it. Yeah, well, and the sad part is that if there is any evidence still somewhere, like the more time that passes by, it's disintegrating, it's, you know, becoming less and less whatever easy to identify and all that stuff. So um, I definitely feel really bad and my heart goes out to the families on this one because they have they have no clue what happened. 
Well, with that, we will bring to a close another episode of Gone But Never Forgotten. Thank you so much to all of our supporters, patrons, and listeners for spending your time with us, and we'll talk to you again next time. We'll see you guys next time.